see this dumbest thing? McDonald's is apparently doing stuff for like the Spider-Man thing. And if you're a girl and you get a girl Happy Meal, they give you a pink Spider-Man. What? <laughs> Sacrilege. <laughs> Someone will feel the flames of hell for that. <laughs> if you're new, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so yesterday we went up. Um, okay, well, first I'll tell you this. I, I broke my finger this week. Um, I smashed it with a mallet. And, and, I, and I put this on. I wasn't wearing this. See, it's all purple and blue and it's really nasty. Uh, and actually, so my bone from here forward is kind of shattered, but they can't do anything about it. Unless it was sticking out, then they like put pins in it. But anyway, uh, so first service, so I'm playing like three-finger guitar this morning. And first service, I wasn't wearing it, and I don't realize how much I talk with my hands. And I'm like, la, 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 boom. I'm like, <gasps> and apparently, I didn't know this, I hit the podium a lot. I did not know that. I'm sorry. So I put the I put the protector back on here. So now I can be like, I'm gonna tone the guitar to open E and just play like slide chords all morning. Always pointing like this. Woo! Staying alive. Staying alive. All right. So we did this thing yesterday called uh, Run or Die. Uh, anybody do that? That wasn't with us. Anybody go do Run or Die? Okay. Well, the traffic was atrocious. So let you know. But anyway, so here, here's like some element people before it started. Nice and clean, right? Woo, look at us. This is after. <laughs> nice, right? And so, so Mike and I were trying to get, you know, pictures of our faces because apparently I didn't plan this. My end ended up looking like, like Braveheart. And he looked like the Blue Man Group. And so we're trying to get our picture like together like this. And we got photobombed. We got photobombed by the Steiner's little girl. Here's the picture. Uh, it's funny, if you look at the whole picture, we look like giants, like at the photo perspective, and she's like this tiny little, th- but she photobombed us, what's up with that? <laughs> and then, and Mike was telling me how because of my hand, it's like I'm supposed to hold it up like this so the blood doesn't all stick in it and pool, and, and so I look like I'm like like a, a crazy Christian, because I'm like, everybody's like, and I'm like, hello, so, what, look. <laughs> All right, go to the next one. So anyway, uh, just just something to let you know, if you have been around Element for a while, uh, this whole section of property has now been sold. Our lease is good for another three years, uh, but in probably about six months, they're going to start working out here on some things, which means that whole parking lot's going to be gone. So this is what's going to have to happen. So you're going to have to pull in and make a right, and we actually own half of that parking lot back there in the back. And you see some people starting to park out there. And what you can do is you can just pull in the driveway. You can actually pull in and park out there. You may have to work, walk an extra 20 feet, but it'll be good for you. Trust me, it'll be good for that hamburger you're getting after service anyway. Work some of that off. Sorry, Chris Hagel. So um, you can go right out there, park, park out there. And what's kind of cool is there's actually an exit in the back. You don't got to pull back out and fight the traffic getting out here. You can actually pull out the back. And just pull it that way. It was funny, on Easter, between second and third service, it was so full. People were driving by to stop to go, and they're just like, no. And they just kept on driving. And this, and that would actually begin to help. So if you've been around a while and you wouldn't mind, would you actually just make it your habit to start parking back here? Give like some parking spots to people who are newer, who have no idea, and actually be like, oh, hey, I can park there. So ten of you will park out there. 
We'll see. We'll see. I guarantee you're all going to forget next week and you're also going to park where you normally park. But just let you know, because eventually it, it is all going to be gone. So uh, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the community tables throughout the room. In the sermon notes, you'll get some notes that go along with the message, not necessarily follow it. And there's some questions on the back and verses that we cover, although really we're only covering a couple of verses this morning as we talk about being salt and light. You have a smartphone, you can download an app, it is called Uversion. Click on live in Uversion, and in your smartphone you will get the sermon notes and the verses and everything that goes along with today's message. So stand with me, you're reading to God's Word. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, and Jesus says, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, and Jesus, when he says that, that's out of the Beatitudes, and what he's talking about is you and I. In that. So we'll talk about what that really means. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who are salt and light in the world, that we would understand your calling, that we would uh, see the beauty that we're supposed to display to the world around us, but also the joy as well, and that we would be your children who rightly honor your name in all things. Amen. Have a seat. Right, so you probably thought it never happened, but we this week get out of the Beatitudes. This is Sermon on the Mount, week 14. Yay, go us. We promised you we would do it. We are true to our word. We are professionals. We have made it out. So now we are talking about salt and light, and we're going to talk about Star Trek too. even though I know it's the May the 4th be with you. But, you know, we're going sacrilege, and we're going to go Star Trek this morning, so whatever. George Lucas is not dead, so he's not rolling over in his grave, but anyway. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read the entirety of the verses we're going to be talking about today, and then we'll kind of walk through them. This week and next week are going to go together, so it's a two-parter. And I really was kind of figuring out which week I wanted to do first, because one week's going to be really bummer and heavy, and one week's going to be kind of fun and, and happy. And so this week is going to be bummer and heavy. Just, yay! <laughs> so I was like, I haven't been to church in 20 years, and I'm glad I picked today. Wonderful. Uh, but it's, it's going to be a little more theological. We're going to kind of explain some of this stuff, and the next week is going to be what that truth looks like as it's lived out. So Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16 says, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works give glory to your father who is in heaven which goes back to the beatitudes and talks about the kingdom of god now as we walk through this the best way for me to connect this to you i think is to talk about star trek when i wrote this message end of darkness was just coming out i was hoping it would do well because i like jj abrams and all the lens flares i know they're over the place but hey i still wanted to see more and it did well so they are making another one but if you're a trekkie you know that what the star trek holds to is this thing called the prime directive if you're not a trekkie you probably just fell asleep because i could star trek and prime directive within two minutes of each other you're like oh, i'm just out now Stay awake, we'll figure this out and, and follow me. So whenever Captain Kirk or Captain Picard or Captain Janeway or Captain Pike or Captain Sisko or Captain Archer, I think that's all of them at this point, uh, uh, and then their ship, the Enterprise, the Voyager, the Defiant, whatever one would come to a new planet, new civilization, when they boldly went where no one had gone before, and all their dealings with new civilizations, they had to hold to this thing called the Prime Directive. And I was going to ask if anybody knew what that was, but I didn't want you to have to out yourself as being a Trekkie and look all embarrassed and geeky, so I'll just tell you what it is. Okay, The Prime Directive was this idea that you do not interfere with the evolution of any particular planet or civilization. 
Now, the question is, why don't you do something like that? Well, the answer, according to Gene Roddenberry, is that all existence and all creatures are inevitably evolving to a higher and higher social order, higher mental order, higher physical life forms, and you can't do anything to mess that up. Uh, He believed that if you left everything alone, people would just get better and better and better. Right, okay. He's dead, by the way, just letting you know. Um, Star Trek is based on this outdated idea that was around for over 100 years, and it's still a little bit alive today. That I mean, it went through the 1800 or the late 1800s and 1900s, early part of the 21st century. It's really kind of painful to read about the changes that people have gone through in this, uh, where poets and artists and scientists would, would all talk about the inevitability of human progress moving forward. I'll give you a couple examples. There's a guy named H.G. Wells. You probably heard about him. Wrote a book called The Time Machine. Wrote a, wrote a bunch of other better books than that, but most people know that one. And he said this at one point in his life. He says, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, that it will live, the children of our blood and lives will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. Very optimistic, right? Is this on? Very optimistic, right? Okay, my goodness, people. Okay, 20 years later, the same guy writes this. He says, Homo sapiens, doesn't even call him mankind, Homo sapiens, as he is pleased to call himself, has played out. His depravity has come near to breaking my spirit. Do you see how it changed? He had this optimistic view of human progress, and yet that becomes shattered eventually by the reality of the world in which he lived and how people sin against one another. I'll give you another example. In the 1850s, there was a no- novel that came out. It was called The Coral Island. And the Coral Island was about a bunch of young English schoolboys. They're shipwrecked on an island. They had to build a whole new world in society. And so what they built was something that was a paradise on earth. It was equality and love. How nice and beautiful. In the 1960s, there's another book uh, by uh, William Golding. He writes the same plot as the Coral Island, but his book is called The Lord of the Flies. There's a bunch of English schoolboys. They get shipwrecked on an island, and it doesn't turn out the same way. Instead, they vie for power. They try to kill each other, and they end up hunting one another down. Because the optimism that all these people had were played out as they realized what humanity does to one another. Now, the characteristic of the late 20th century, the early 21st century, where we are, is now a deep and a deepening cynicism. We are cynical about everything around us. It is everywhere, from arts and sciences to government. There is cynicism that any real progress will ever take place among people because we cannot deal with our problems. I mean, when you look at politicians, it's true. It's easy to be cynical about politicians because none of them tell the truth. We don't like any of them. That's just how it goes. But this goes to people like pastors as well. And I know because I'm very cynical about other pastors. Because I am one. And I know, man. I, I, I know. I look at them and I, and I can see it. I mean, I own a small business and I work for Element. And many times when I talk to people, I will talk about my small business before I talk about being a pastor. Not because I'm embarrassed about you much. <laughs> I'm certainly not embarrassed about Jesus at all, but it's really what the crazy pastors that they always are reporting about on TV are doing, and it kind of embarrasses me because it's like they're going to think I'm like one of those. And so I talk about other things first instead. Even doctors now. New York Times recently had an article that talked about the spike in the number of people who say doctors are just in it for the money. And when I read that, I thought, of course you're just in it for the money. Why do you do your job? Why do you do your job? So you you can get paid. Exactly. Of course they're in it for the money. It's, it's so where we end up being in this position where we look at other people around us and we think, you know, everybody's crooks but like you and me. And I have questions about you. 
We think that. Now, H.G. Wells, what happened to his optimism? What happened to this idea of the Coral Island's approach to understanding of life? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. I'll give you a trip down memory lane. Okay, Several hundred years ago, for almost the last 500 years, Western society has been built on this idea of what's called Christendom or a Christian vision. Now, what that essentially said is the world's a difficult place. We sin against one another. Things are difficult. Things are hard. Sin is a horrible thing, and it destroys everything around it. But there's an authoritative word called the Scriptures, the Bible, where God has spoken into uh, this reality, and God has given us truth. And then there's a supernatural God who, who lives and wants to interact with us and redeem and save us, and he brings the kingdom of God into our lives through conversion and believing in him. That realm can break into the reality here, and things can actually change. Now, along about the 1700s comes along, and this view called the Enlightenment takes place. And the Enlightenment says that human beings, by use of their own reason, can figure things out. We can make everything better if we just rely upon ourselves. Things will get better and better and better. Now, some of that came about because the church was acting like a bunch of idiots at the time. But they said human beings are just evolving towards higher and higher life forms. And don't confuse that with Darwin. It's not the same thing. This is the idea of of our mental evolution, that we're going to ascend and get farther and farther. And so the Enlightenment was a particular view of humanity that was really, really optimistic. And they looked at Christianity and they said, well, you know, you just talk about sin. And all this gloom about sin really hurts our self-esteem, so we shouldn't talk about it. And, you know, this about the Bible being the authority and God above everything, well, that destroys our creativity. And so we don't really like that. We know what kind of world we want, and so we're going to go get that world. And what is the result? You know, we're 300 plus years past the Enlightenment, and are things getting better and better? No. No, the century that got rid of God has been the most bloodiest century to date. And this is what we have to understand, that man left to his own inevitably goes further and further into darkness. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, b- biblical Christianity, it is not shallow optimism. It is not dark pessimism. It doesn't simply look at the ideal of with the world out there, you know, the, the paradise of the world to come. It doesn't simply look at the simple and the natural and the real the way that pessimists do. It looks at Jesus. And if you were to talk to somebody in the Enlightenment, what you would say to them about Jesus is Jesus is the ideal who has stepped into the real. Jesus has blasted into the sin-soaked world. Everything that stood between the ideal of the kingdom of God and the real or sin-soaked world has been shattered. Timothy Keller writes like this. He says, Jesus Christ, our glorious captain, has opened up the cleft in the pitiless walls of the world and he bids us follow him through. Basically, don't do the way things have always been done. Things can really be different. So Matthew 5, 13 to 16, what Jesus teaches is that the world needs salt and light. The world is subject to decay. Our sin is making it spin out of control, and it's just disintegrating. It's falling apart. It's getting worse and worse. Salt is a preservative. It also tastes good, which we'll talk about next week, but it's a preservative. And I think the thing that Jesus teaches here, the world in itself is falling apart. But he says there is salt and light that has stepped into the world, that has done something about the sin problem, and he can save it. Which means if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered your life to him, you've become that salt and that light. You start to become that ideal of the kingdom that now lives in the reality of this world. The kingdom of God gets rid of these ideas of optimism and pessimism. And what it starts to do is live in a place that's true hope. Not stick your head in the sand kind of hope, but real hope. And if you do not embrace the truth of what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, you're going to be in this horrible roller coaster ride your entire life. You're optimist, pessimist, optimist, pessimist, optimist. Your whole life you're going to be doing this. All of humanity today is on that roller coaster. And Jesus says, don't get on the roller coaster. Understand where true hope lies. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go old school. I'll give you a three-point sermon this morning. Bam. Yeah, I know, huh? 
The first point is going to be the world is decaying. The second one is that there is salt and light from outside the world to stop the decay. And the third one is that you and I get to be that salt and light. So let me show you what I mean. Number one, the world is subject to decay. Now, salt in Near Eastern times is it was used as a preservative. I mean, obviously, it didn't have refrigerators like you and I have today, right? Right, good. All right, you're following a little better this time. Okay, the only way you keep meat from going bad immediately is you salt the snot out of it. And we think, well, that sounds yummy, right? That's what we do at Santa Maria Barbecue. Sweet. We already got that down. We don't need refrigerators. We need more salt. Now, light has the exact same thing. If light's a preservative, if there's no light, everything begins to die. Now, at the time this was written, there were no electric lights like we have today. And so when it talks about these lamps, it'd be like a wick floating in like a bowl of oil. Kind of like that show Revolution. No? Okay, a couple of you, good. I had one guy last service go, I watched that show afterwards, because it's like, I guess you got to be, because apparently he's the only one, because nobody watches that show anymore, but whatever. Anyway, it's like that. Uh, have you ever been, like, where all the lights went out, all the power goes out, and you light your candles, and you go, oh, great, I got my candles. But have you ever been someplace where there wasn't any candles, and maybe all the doors shut, and you didn't have the moon or the stars, and it was pitch black? When that happens, you get a little bit of vertigo. You get disoriented. You don't, it's like, I, I don't even know where the walls, I don't know what to do, and everything just starts to get a little bit wonky. But this is what Jesus is saying, that the world needs salt and light. Human existence left to itself and its sin inevitably goes to greater and greater disorder and disintegration. It gets darker and darker and darker. That's what he says. As simply as I can, I'm going to show you a couple different ways that this kind of takes place. Think of yourself physically, okay? We're all falling apart. The older you get, the more you're aware of this, all right? But we are all falling apart. It takes a lot of work to try and stop that. I mean, we'll, we'll buckle up and eat vitamins and eat veggies and all these things. Some of us just give up and take whatever pills the doctor gives us. Take this, then you can do whatever you want. Sweet. You know, feel like I'm there half the time. You know, the natural tendency because of sin is for the world to fall apart. Eventually, we will die. We will literally fall apart. Our molecules will start to separate from one another. And as horrible as that is, everything in our world is doing the same thing. From flowers to rocks. Flowers faster than you, rocks slower, but eventually rocks are going to split. They're going to become sand and dust, and they're going to blow away. Everything falls apart physically. But think about this. Everything also falls apart relationally and socially. All relationships have this natural course where they want to go bad. If you have friendships, you know how easy sometimes it is to either get offended by or offend your friends. And it's like, well, what do I do now? Friendships are really hard to keep together. Only with great efforts do you keep relationships together. It just goes to show what Jesus is saying is right. The natural tendency is to go to greater and greater disorder. This is why our world seems to always fall back into racism and sexism and ageism and class warfare. We're always trying to fight each other. I mean, governments all over the world, when they're uncontrolled, will say, oh, we're going to help our people. We're here for peace. And they quickly bring about the enslavement of their own people. When you don't keep an eye on things, bad things begin to happen. I mean, look at marriage, okay? Marriage is the ultimate relationship. I mean, if it, you know, you've got Jesus first, your marriage is on earth, that ultimate relationship you're supposed to be watching out for taking care of. A marriage is hard work to tend to make sure it doesn't fall apart, right? Thank you. You know, other services were like, I'm like, apparently you can all teach marriage seminars. You know, you got it all together. Marriage is hard, hard work. I mean, all the time you got to work on it. you got to learn, how do I need to give more? How can I serve you more? What, what do you need? It's always trying to serve that other person, and it's really hard to keep it together. You know, at crime, racism, war, class struggle, you know, labor management problems, you know, divorce, all these things. So the natural tendency in our world is to disintegrate and go to disorder because of sin. 
And, and nobody in our world seems to really be naturally happy, at least what they tell you in all the ads. You've got to take our pill. It'll, it'll cheer you up. There's depression there. There's anxiety there. Take these things. We'll figure you out. I mean, the context for all of this is scientific at its core. The universe is running down. Second law of thermodynamics called entropy. Energy is dissipating. Everything is running down. Eventually, our sun will burn out. Eventually, the earth will be blown away and dry up. Everything is going to pieces. See, it's a bummer, right? It's like, man, I'll go home and start drinking or something. This is horrible. <laughs> this is what Jesus is saying when he says the world needs salt and the world needs light. I mean, think about this. If the world is all that there is, and the world is going to pieces, and matter is all that there is, and there is nothing else, there is no supernatural, it wouldn't matter what religion you're in, if you believe in God or not. I mean, everybody who says, you know, we don't believe in God, but we want progress. Why do you want progress? The world tries so hard not to face up to this fact. If there is no God, there's no reason to really do anything. Back in the late 80s and 90s, the Cold War was ending, and people were saying, finally, there's hope for the problem of the nuclear threat. When I was in junior high, it was like the big deal. It's like, you're going to be nuclear bombed by Russia. But then, you know, Russia is dissolving. How wonderful. Ha, ha, ha. Do you watch the news? My goodness, there's going to be hope, right? And so now they said, oh, we can look forward to not have to die from nuclear war and won't have pollution and disease. What a great world. And if Christians were honest, not to be pessimistic about it, but if we were honest, you could step into that and say, why are you so excited about this? Do you realize nothing has actually increased or decreased the death rate? The death rate is one per person. <laughs> Always has been. That's how it works. And I am kind of sarcastic. If you don't know this, I am kind of sarcastic sometimes. And when I say this to certain people... You know, they're like, that's not the point. And then they start trying to defend it. You know, the nuclear threat meant, you know, premature death. It was, it was painful death. You know, the real problem with the nuclear war is that humanity and civilization would end. There'd be no more art, no more music, and no more love, and no more culture, and no more poetry. And the lights would just go out forever and be awful. And it drives me crazy because a lot of the people I argue with about these things or have vigorous discussions with about these things... <laughs> They don't actually believe in God. And I'm always like, if you don't believe in God, then what does it matter? What does it matter? If there's no supernatural, then, then civilization is just an accidental flicker. There's some molecules that, that got together billions of years ago and eventually you know, became civilization. But it's still just an infinitely small section in the eons and oceans of time that come before it or after it. I mean, these trillions and billions of years that come on either side of that. If no one's going to know about it once it's gone, what does it even matter? Who cares? What does it matter if we have war or we have peace? And today the nuclear threat is actually just getting stronger. And when people say, well, you know, I, I just really don't believe that there's a God or anything outside of this, then you also have to admit that there's no reason for beauty. None whatsoever. I mean, most music sounds amazing. But if there's nothing from outside this world that gives meaning and truth and beauty and life, the reason that you like music instead of maybe a hammer hitting a finger or a tree falling down in the middle of a forest is just simply because your nervous system likes it. There is no other reason. It's all just an illusion. The beauty and the glory of it all is just an illusion. But if you live your life like there is beauty and right and wrong and you live your life like there's meaning and love, you are living as if there actually is a God. That's how you're living. You're as living as if there is salt and light from out there that has stepped into this universe. And it's not very fair of you to complain there is no God because you're eating off his table and refusing to admit that he actually exists. <sighs> Don't clap, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. At least my second point. Number two. There is salt and light from outside the world that can save it. 
I can save it, all right? Jesus says there is salt and light, and there's a real answer to where it actually comes from, okay? The salt and light is Jesus himself. Jesus says this, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, Jesus doesn't say that you are like the sun or you are like the stars, because sun and the stars have light in themselves. He says you're like a lamp. In this culture, the lamps weren't considered to be producing light. You would have the, the light in the middle, and then you'd have this covering around, and that covering illuminated, and that was the lamp. And so the lamp was illuminated by something else. You are not the light. You hold the light. You are illuminated by Christ. Your light is derived. You are not the light. You are not the sun. Now, in John chapter 1 and John chapter 8, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And what does that mean? Number one, throughout the scriptures, what you see is that Jesus says that that means that he is the truth. John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so what happens is the truth illuminates. He illuminates, meaning he guides us to reality. And basic reality 101, because we have light, we can see the chairs in this room. Right? Okay, good. You're following me. That, that's good. The, the chairs don't show us the light. The light shows us the chairs. The difference between light and the chairs is the light in which we see everything around us. John eight twelve, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus says he is the ultimate reality. He is. Light comes from him. He is how we understand everything. Now, a couple years ago at Easter, I talked about how people hate the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus, that he is the only way. And yet that is the essence of the Christian message. I mean, some people will say, if you believe that, you're saying that other religions don't have as much truth in them, that Jesus being the light, and it means all other religions don't have that light. And the answer from a Christian perspective is... Right, right, that, that's true. And that's, not, and that's not to be like, oh, I'm better than you or something like that. that that's just the truth claims of who, what, who Christ is. If you follow Jesus, you have to understand that Jesus doesn't give you the option to say all roads lead to the same place. He doesn't do that. The founder of every other religion says, I'm a prophet. Jesus says, I'm not just a prophet, I'm God. And I am pointing to the light. I am the light of the world. I can illuminate your life. And so we can't say that Jesus was just a good teacher among many because he himself doesn't give us that option. And so either Jesus lied or he's speaking the truth. But both cannot be equally valid. He doesn't give us the option. Now, some people say it's wrong to evangelize and try and convert people because all religions are equally valid. What's really funny about that is it sounds really nice, but what that is is that's a narrow-minded view of the world. They are doing the exact same thing that they say Christians are doing. They are saying, I have the exclusive claims of the, and, the, and the light, which is their relativism, and they have more light than everyone else, because the way I see it is the way it has to be. They are doing the exact same thing that Christianity claims to be doing. They say that their understanding, their religious perspective, has more light than anyone else, especially those who are so narrow to believe that Jesus is the light of the world. They're proselytizing you by saying you can't proselytize. They're evangelizing you not to evangelize anybody. You've got to understand, Jesus is either the light of the world or he is darkness. It is one or the other. By the things that he has said, that is where he leaves us. He doesn't give us a third option. He puts us in that position. Now, if Jesus is the light of the world, then he is the only way that we will ever see what reality really is. Period. That's just it. If Jesus is the salt, that means he can renew the world. He can help relationships stay together. He can renew our hearts and our minds and our psyche so they stay together. And we no longer become optimists. We no longer become pessimists. We become realistic and live in hope. And we look at the state of the world and we can see what happens when the ideal, the kingdom of God, actually crashes into the world and is lived in a tangible way. 
equates to number three, which is you and I can be the salt and light of the world if and when we are associated with Jesus. What that means is we surrender our lives to Jesus. His light comes in and he illuminates us. His salt, his preserving power, we would use the euphemism calling eternal life, comes into our life and we become the salt of the earth and we become the light of the world. Now, let's see if I can scare you a bit in this and get you to get some reflection in this. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, this is coming out of the Beatitudes. So, we've just spent 13 weeks talking about what all of that means and how that comes together. Jesus is saying, if you call yourself a Christian, this is what your life's supposed to be like. All right? Number one, salt and light exposes decay and darkness. Salt and light exposes decay and darkness. If, you're, if you are light, that means your life, by virtue of its beauty of following Jesus, that when other people come into contact with you, the beauty of your life following Jesus illuminates that environment. The beauty of your life shows up other things for what they really are. So what that means is if you call yourself a Christian just by your presence, you would reveal the dishonesty in your workplace. You would reveal the good things in your workplace where people try and help each other. You reveal the gossip in your office. You reveal the racism in your neighborhood. You reveal the corruption in your own political party. Imagine that. Your life, by its order, by the way you handle pressure, by the way in which you take criticism, by the way that you treat people around you, who work with you, beneath you, over you, if you are like Jesus, the beauty of that is going to show up in the environment of where you live. Now, does it? Does it? And quite honestly, if, if we say the truth, it doesn't in a lot of our lives. I mean, I know there are tons of places in my life where it doesn't. And I know it needs to be better. And that's not condemnation, and it's not shame, and it's not guilt. What that is is understanding of God's grace that he still meets us there and calls us into who we're supposed to be, salt and light. You ever go to like one of your drawers, and you've got to go to like a dress thing, and you, and you pull out two socks, and you can't tell if they're blue or black. And you're like, and if you don't care, you put them on anyway, and people go like, oh, you're a dummy. You know? <laughs> but if you take them like to either outside in the center to a good light, you can be like, oh, well, this one's black, and this one's really dark blue. Oh, and you get to see it. That, that's kind of what Jesus is saying is our lives are supposed to be like. We are supposed to live in the beauty of the kingdom of God and who he is, that it exposes what is good around us and what is not. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what's interesting is the phrase for good works here. There are two Greek words that can be used for good. One is agathos, one is kalos. Now, the word agathos means like good in quality. Kalos actually means the idea of beautiful. You know what word Jesus uses here? Beautiful, beautiful. Your lives and the way you live are supposed to be so beautiful that it illuminates everything around you. Is your life so beautiful that it shows the contrast between the beauty of Christ and what's around you? Or do you simply blend in? Is there nothing remarkable about your life? Secondly, if you are salt and light, it means you bring joy to people. Bring joy to people. Now, salt is a preservative, but it's also a seasoning. Uh, We'll talk about it again this next week. But it was the original seasoning. It brings out the taste in something. It makes things taste good. And light, of course, is beautiful because it shows up the beauty of things. Now, this can be hard sometimes because if you're really living and your life is illuminating things around you, sometimes that illumination will illuminate corruption. I mean, it just simply happens. And, of course, then you get persecuted, which goes back to the kingdom of God. You understand how it all goes together. But even in the middle of that, you're still supposed to be able to bring joy into situations. How does that work? What does that look like? I think one of the best places you see this is all the way back in the book of Genesis. If you missed it, we went through a year and a half on the book of Genesis. Okay, So you can go back and listen to it. They're all online, ourelement.org. They're free. You get what you pay for, but you know they're there. You can listen to them all. Um, 
And we talked about Joseph when he, when he goes in to Egypt and he's standing before Pharaoh when Pharaoh has this dream. The Pharaoh in Egypt believed he was God on the earth. He connected the world of man to the world of the gods and that's Pharaoh and he has this dream. And he's like, I got to figure out what this dream means because apparently if you're God, you need help. Apparently, if you're Pharaoh. So anyway, so, so Joseph says essentially to Pharaoh, you know, I'm a slave, but I'm going to tell you the truth. You are not that big of a deal, and you need God. And Pharaoh's like, no, no, I'm God. And Joseph's like, you know, there's two truths. You know, there, there is a God, and you are not him. You know, that's, that's essentially their conversation. It's kind of funny. And Pharaoh's like, no, no, you don't understand. The issue is my dream. And, and Joseph is like, no, no, your issue is God. Your issue is God. But I know him, and I will talk to him for you. And what he does is he exposes the darkness that's there. But then Joseph also goes on, and he saves this entire country. He brings joy and light and hope and peace because even though in exposing the darkness around him, he still brings joy because that is what believers in Christ are supposed to be doing. We become a blessing because God has blessed us. That's what happens. And Joseph saves this entire country. Now, uh, lastly, to be salt and light means you work for unity. Okay, We work for unity. Jesus calls his, his children a city on a hill, a city on a hill, that is a corporate place. Salt has to work together. One grain of salt does not salt anything. You ever get one grain of salt on your tongue and it disappears, right? It's like, oh, where would it go? I don't know. You know, that's what happens. And so we have to work as a unit together. Now, individually, you will be involved in people's lives. You will pray for them. You will love on them. You will do those things. But when Jesus says you in these verses, it's plural. The Greek is plural. It means more than one. And so it's a plural thing. The way in which everything works is when God's children live and work together, we begin to bring about the kingdom of God. At Element, we try and get you all involved in what are called gospel communities because we believe that's the best way to do that. We believe you connecting together and going out being God's hands and feet in the world, you get to live the gospel with each other together. Because the church, it is not a club. The church is essentially like a city in a city. It's a new humanity where people can see what race relations are supposed to be like and what business practices should be like and what family life is supposed to look like and what friendships can actually be under the Lordship of Christ. I don't know if you have ever looked at somebody else, either in this room or one of your friends, that other than, you know, both of you loving Jesus, you would never be friends. I mean, that could be most of you for me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, but, but, but that's the idea. If you don't have anybody in your life that you wouldn't be friends with, you know, apart from Jesus, then you're probably not being salt and you're probably not being light. I mean, sim- simply put, are you the light of the world? Well, that starts with Jesus. Jesus illuminates us. And in that, we have to be lit. And you have to ask, has the light of Christ ever come into your life? And that is the most important in your life, question in your life you'll ever ask. You surrender to Christ and your life becomes lit. On the other hand, some of us who have been lit have yet to realize that we are supposed to be salt and light. We don't even realize that we're lit up. And sometimes I worry because I'm not sure there are a lot of people noticing the beauty of our lives. And guys, look, I, I know, I know sometimes that that's hard you know, to live the beauty of Christ in certain situations, but that's what we're just simply called to do and be. I mean, do people know the beauty of your life in following Christ, or do you simply blend in? How are you being salt and light in your life? I mean, I, I specifically this week didn't try to put a little pretty bow on the end of this message, because usually I have to try and tie My friend Pete's always like, you always tie messages up really nice and good. I'm, I'm really trying not to do that today, because what I really want you guys to do is walk out of here thinking about this feeling like there hasn't been a resolution. So every conversation you have and every person you come into contact with, your first thought is, am I being salt and light? I was talking to a guy this week. He's got a bunch of friends that he hangs out with on the weekends, and, and his friends aren't believers, and all they live for is going out and getting loaded every weekend. 
And he, and he says, you know, I want to hang out with him. And I said, so, so how are you being salt and light to that situation? He's like, I don't know. And he's not. And he's not. And I said, as a follower of Christ, you should be the beauty that steps into that situation that shows the corruption, but also shows the joy of following Christ is because there's so much more to life than simply getting loaded every weekend. To live your life going, oh, I can't wait till Friday and Saturday and Sunday, and I'll go to work Monday all hungover and, you know, build cars and, you know, buy a Monday car. You know, you've got... We have to show the world there's so much more to live for because there is and it is found in the person of Christ. We are lit. We become salt and light to the world. That's a huge calling. I mean that Jesus would place upon us that when people see us, they'd be seeing who he is. That is crazy. It's such a high calling and that's not you know, to make you feel guilty when you don't measure up. It's not to throw shame on top of you. What it is, is it's calling, it's grace, it's, it's here's the gospel and here's the truth and follow me, live in the light. And when we understand the grace of what we've been given, I think we so much more want to be that salt and light. And so today, this is why we come to communion. It's this idea that we understand that Jesus died for us. And so you break that cracker like his body was broken for you. And you dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So that our sins be forgiven. And that we are raised to new life. And that we begin to live as the light of the world because we have been illuminated by him. And we become these lamps and these outposts in this world that get to show who Jesus is. We illuminate the way that point and lift him up. And it's simply amazing. Simply amazing. Um, the band's going to come up. As they do, they're going to do a couple songs, and we invite you guys to take communion. If you need prayer, there's going to be some deacons and elders in the back. And maybe you're in a place in your life, maybe you've never surrendered to Christ, and you don't know what it means to be illuminated. Or maybe you have surrendered to Christ, and you never realized, oh, I'm supposed to be salt and light. I'm not just supposed to be a jerk the rest of my life to everybody. And so maybe you need to have somebody pray with you to understand that calling a little bit better, but also the grace on the backside of that calling, that grace that helps us to understand that Jesus is everything. And so we focus on him and not the optimism and not the pessimism. It's not a simple ideal. It is a person. We are always steering people towards Jesus. It's not just a vague generalization of God. It is we are steering people to the person of Jesus Christ. Salt and light. We help people to taste and see that the Lord is good because our lives are lived a certain way. Um, And if you need prayer to live like that or you just want someone to talk to, they'd love to talk or pray with you. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. It's part of being salt and light. And there's some food back there. Uh, My wife made these cookies last night. I think she's trying to make me all pudgy because she kept trying to feed them to me. And they're really good. But I actually turned down a cookie last night, so just letting you know. I know, but they're really good. And I, and, and I had them in this box, and it said 9.30 service, but the lady who was putting stuff out didn't see them. And so they're back there. So those, those vultures from that second service didn't get them. So, so there's food back there. Grab something to eat, meet somebody else, and grab some sermon notes maybe, and invite somebody out to lunch or uh, go to a gospel community. If you're not involved in one or you're really worried about being in one, maybe just done with your family this week and ask the questions in there. I mean, if you're like wondering, how do I help my family to focus more on Jesus? The easiest thing you can do is you've just had 30 to 45 minutes of prep right here. You go home, pull it out, and just talk to your family over dinner about it. Ask some of those questions. What does it mean for to live as a family, as salt and light in the world? How can we do that better? 
I mean, it's really simple and it's really easy, and you can even start that today. We want to be a church that enables you to lift up Christ, to be salt and light in the world, and worship him in all things, because Jesus is good. He is good. All the time. Live like he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to really live as salt and light. To understand your great calling to us. That you allow us to be your ambassadors to the world around us. That it's not about us having to help people live in crazy optimism. That people can actually live in the reality of where there are and have true hope in you. Father, we ask that you would take our hearts and that you would mold us and that you would guide us and you would begin to change us to understand how to be salt and light in every circumstance that we come into, the relationships that we're a part of, the relationships that we will be a part of someday, to constantly in the back of our mind be thinking, salt and light, I represent Jesus Christ to this world. And we would ask you to constantly remind us to illuminate you to lift you up and show the way to you. That we'd understand that corporately that we as a people, together by how we love and honor one another and our friendships and our lives, are going to show who you are to the world who so desperately needs the truth and reality of the kingdom of God. We ask that in the midst of where we are today that you would speak what is true to us in our hearts. And that though we may understand that, that it wouldn't cause shame, it would cause us to understand the graciousness of who you are. And that would begin to change us, to draw us into who you call us to be and who we are supposed to be. Teach us to love you. Because you have first loved us. Teach us to be light because you have illuminated us. Teach us to be salt because your goodness has preserved us for eternal life. And we're to go out and be tasty to the world around us and present that life to all we come into contact with. Take our hearts, take our lives, take all that we are. Speak what is true to us and have us live in that truth. We ask these things in your son's precious and good name. Amen.